Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity to come together and worship and gather in your name. We ask you to bless this time, your Holy Spirit, to guide and lead us as we look at your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Isaiah chapter 41. All right, we started this chapter last week. We talked about how people debate whether, what it, who it's about. Some people say it's about Abraham. Some people say it's about Cyrus. Some people say it's about Jesus. I believe it's about Jesus. All right, so we, we covered that. We had that section in there where for some reason they threw the talk about an idol in there. And we're now looking at verse 10. Fear you not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yea, I will help you. Yea, I will uphold you with my right hand of my righteousness. Behold, all they which are incensed against you shall be ashamed and confounded. They shall be as nothing. And they that strive with you shall perish. You shall seek them, and you shall not find them, even them that contend with you. They that war against you shall be as nothing and as a thing of naught. For I, the Lord your God, will hold your right hand, saying unto you, Fear not, I will help you. Fear not, you worm Jacob, and you men of Israel. I will help you, says the Lord, and your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I will make you a sharp, a new sharp threshing instrument having teeth, and you shall thresh the mountains and beat them small, and shall make the hills as chaff. You shall fan them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the whirlwind shall scatter them. You shall rejoice in the Lord, and shall re glory in the Holy One of Israel. When the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue fails for thirst, I, the Lord, will hear them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers in high places and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and a dry land springs of water. I will plant in the wilderness of the cedar, the shitta tree, the myrtle, the oil tree. I will set in the desert the fir tree and in the pine and the box tree together that they may see and know and consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord hath done this and the Holy One of Israel hath created it. Okay, I'm going to look at this section, read, read quite a bit. We're going to examine it now. So verse 10, fear you not, for I am with you. We're going to stop right there because this is important. Why are we not to fear? Because God is with us. God is in control. All right, and I've shared with you, I did a study on, on fear one time, and one-third of all the verses that talk about fear are fear not. It's an amazing thing. God does not want us fearing as his children. Why? Because he's in control. He is right at our side. All things work together for good. He is sovereign. He knows the beginning from the end. Nothing comes my way unless he allows it to come my way. Therefore, I should have no fear. Now, from the world's point of view, what's the worst thing that happens? I die and go to heaven. From my point of view, that's a great thing. All right? And I've told you all, I used to tell teenagers, when I was a teenager, I said, okay, you know, I'm going to kill you. I'm going, okay, be my guest. Just don't almost kill me. <laughs> you know, because then I have to suffer. You kill me, I go to heaven. You, you almost kill me, then I have to suffer the pain. And this is God saying, don't fear, I am with you. That is our promise. God is with us, always. 
He's the shepherd. If somehow we manage to get lost, he comes and finds us anyway. You know, he comes and seeks those who walk, walk away from him. Now, I don't believe that we can walk away from him once he is our shepherd. The ones he's seeking are those that belong to him that haven't made that decision yet. So he's going to go out and seek. He is with us. It says, do not be dismayed. And this literally means gaze about in wonder and anxiety. Yeah. How many times have we wandered around in a daze, you know, so worried about what's going to happen, so concerned about what's going to happen, and what happens when we walk around in fear and dismay? We miss out on everything that God's doing in our life. We miss out on opportunities. We miss out on where we're what we're supposed to be doing. Because I'm so worried about other things. And it is amazing how easy it is to overlook God's plan. If we're not focused on him, we're not focusing on where he's at, and we're worrying about stuff. How much time do people spend worrying about things that never happen and that they can't change anyway, even if they, even if they are worrying about the right thing, they usually can't change anything about it anyway. If it's going to happen, it's going to happen in most cases. And if it's not going to happen, no amount of worrying is going to keep it from you know, keep it from happening or make it happen. So why were well, he's with us? And he says, don't be dismayed. I am your God. Do we really understand what that statement means? I am your God. Isaiah is saying this to a people that are, have idols. That's probably why he has this idol in here. You know, you guys are making stones, cutting them into idols, nailing them up in place, and then you pray to them. They can't hear you. They can't speak. They can't do anything. They can't stand up without your help. And this says, I am your God. He is a God that hears. He is a God that cares. He is a God that answers. He is a God that puts things in our path that just are amazing when we look at it. Went to see the movie Overcomer. And one of the things about Christian movies that the, the critics always complain about is how everything works out. They go, well, things don't work out like that. Well, unfortunately, that may be true for a non-Christian, but for us as Christians, God in my life has always worked things out. I just happen to be at the right place at the right time to get the job. I just happen to be at the right place at the right time to be given a car or be given, given a check or to be given, you know, given tires or being given food. You know, just happen to be there. You know, and people will look at you, well, you're just one of the, you're, you're just one of those lucky people, aren't you? I'll go, no, I'm a blessed person who's a child of God. Who, I have got a father that loves me. You know, he makes sure I get my needs met. And, you know, I was talking with somebody just this week, you know, how many do we miss out because we won't ask God for blessings? We go, God, I, I know you promised me my needs and that's all I care for. And somehow we're supposed to be really spiritual if we never ask God for anything. Doesn't God want to give us great things? I, I know a man who said that he was, he was riding his bike and he was praying for God and he forgot to buy t paper towels at the store and he goes, God, I can't afford to buy paper towels. I'm not riding back. And looks down and there's a brand new roll of, uh, of paper towels wrapped in everything on a brand that he would never have bought laying on the ground. You know, God doesn't answer prayers, doesn't answer our prayers when we just want something. Does this mean he'll give us all of our wants? No, that's the name and claim it. 
know, God, I want this, and yet, because I asked for it, you've got to give it to me. Nope, God says he's not going to give us things that aren't going to be for our good. He's not going to give us things that are going to hurt us. But he does want to give us blessings, and he wants to give us good things. And we think about this. As parents, don't we want to help our kids do better? You know, all right, kid, you know, I gave you breakfast. You don't get to eat again until tomorrow morning. You had your meal. Don't bug me. That's not usually a good parent's attitude. You know, okay, you got a night, you, you know, you need a blanket, let me get you a blanket. You need some more food, we'll get you some more food. Now, am I going to sit there and stuff my kid all day and not let him do any exercises? No, that would not be a good parent. But I'm going to, especially in America, go and give them three meals a day and make them be satisfied. If I was in the rest of the world, it would be two meals a day. Now, we're gluttons here in America. We know that. But that's our standard. We, we expect that. And God is saying, I want to give you. And he says, I am with you. I am your God. I care about you. I will meet your needs. I will protect you. Over and over again, he says that we're to hide in him, where he's our strong shelter. He's our fortress. He's our protector. He lifts us up. He holds with, upholds us. When we, when we fall, he, he catches us. You know, and this is the great thing. When we fall, we fall into his arms. Now, we may think we're falling a long distance, but he catches us before we hit bottom as his, as his children. And that's a good thing. Now, the lost, he may let them hit bottom because they need to know they need him. But for us as his children, we feel like we fall a long way sometimes. We feel like we've come, gone a long ways from him. But he's right there holding us, catching us, lifting us back up. And the great thing about him, because he's our God, he is merciful and puts us right back where we fell from. That's the thing I love about God. He doesn't say, we as humans would be, okay, you made it up to rung 15 and you fell off, get back at the bottom of the ladder and climb back up to 15. And then maybe we'll see how far you can go. No, God says, okay, you fell from 15. I know you're weak. I know you're not able to do it. I'm putting you right back on rung 15. God's plan is wonderful. His plan is great. He works through us. He doesn't want us doing the work anyway. He wants us to be crucified and let him do the work. So he gets us blessings. So of course he doesn't start us out at the bottom because it wasn't our fault. It wasn't us who climbed in the first place. It wasn't us who fell, you know, fell out of his grace because he says, I'm just putting you right back. You climbed because of my grace. You got leadership because of my grace. You got honor because of my grace. And when we repent, he puts us back up. Now, if we don't repent, he may sit there and hold us for a while and not put us back and say, okay, and how many of us haven't done that to a wayward young child who's just bound determined to run out in the street? Pick him up. You're not running out in the street. You're not getting hurt. And if the only way I can do that is to hold you, then I'm going to hold you. I'm going to hold your hand. I'm going to do whatever it takes to keep you from getting hurt. How many times has God done that in our life? in each one of our lives. Okay, I'm holding you. I know you're bound, bound determined to get out there and hurt yourself, and I'm going to hold you because you're my child and keep you out of harm's way. And this is what he's saying to them. I am your God. Yea, I will strengthen you. Yea, I will help you. I will uphold you with the right hand of my righteousness. This is the good news. He holds us and he helps. And this idea of him holding us with the right hand of his righteousness. 
We've talked about this. Right hand in the scriptures is a site of approval. When, when he talks about us being at his right hand, it means that we're approved. He is caring for us. He, and we still have that statement in our, in, our, in our jargon. This is my right hand man or my right hand person. This is the person I count on. I can count on this person. I approve of them. And for a leader, it would be if this person speaks, they're my right hand. If they speak, they're speaking for me. That's how close we are. We're at God's right hand. We are his children, close enough to listen. How does God train us? How did Jesus train the disciples? He spent every day with the disciples, probably not even preaching to them every single minute. It was just, let me walk and let me show you what I'm going to do. How do we get discipled? We spend time with somebody who's living out being a Christian. And that's where it comes out. They, people are always watching us. Always. They're watching us and seeing, okay, how do you react in this situation? How do you react when this happens? What do you do in this situation? And hopefully, we're living God's way and being a good example. You know, Paul in the New Testament said, follow me as I follow Christ. And then he also at the end of his life said, I am guilty of no man's blood. I've done what God has asked me to do. Now, unfortunately, I don't think I can say that. I don't think I have done and talked to every single person. As a matter of fact, I know I haven't talked to every single person I was supposed to talk to. I'm really slow. I've told you all that. Sometimes I think about two hours after I'm done talking to the person, all the things I should have said, or that I should have spoken to them in the first place. I'm really slow on that. But I do take as many opportunities as I recognize and try to be a good, godly person in my walk. And this is the wonderful thing. I shared with you many years ago when I was driving the kids to Phoenix from the church, I got caught in the speed trap in Wikiup that I didn't know was a speed trap. I didn't see the sign to slow, down, to slow down, and I got pulled over. And the kids were just amazed. They're going, you're not acting like my dad would act when he got pulled over. And I'd use that as an opportunity to witness, which then led me to being able to talk to the kids later on. Now, I was very fortunate. I had mercy from the officer. He only gave me a warning. But, you know, I was still ready. Even if I got a ticket, I, even though I didn't see the sign, I deserved it. And it gave me an opportunity to share with the kids. This is what a man of God lives like. This is what a woman of God lives like. This is what, and you know, we show people, this is how a godly person reacts to authority. This is how they react. You know, and it's a good thing when we do it right. <laughs> And people can look at us. If we don't do it right, we can still do a good job. You know, I was a really bad example. I've got to apologize to you, and now I've got to go apologize to God and to the person that I wronged. And that still impacts them. Because how many people apologize you know, in your lifetime? You know, parents need to apologize to their kids more often than we do. Because we sometimes are very bad examples. You know, and we may not want to, but we you know, have this idea of do as I say and not as I do attitude. And we need to sometimes apologize to our kids. You know, I really blew it. I'm sorry. I was a bad example. And I think of how many people, you know, want their kids to tell the truth. And back before we had caller ID, you know, you'd have your kid answer the phone and say, tell them I'm not here. All right, Dad, you told me to tell the truth. Now you want me to lie. You know, I've even known people who will step outside the house so that they won't be there. You know, but even that is bending the truth. And here it says, God upholds us. You know, 
we really do need to understand who we are in Christ. We are his children. We are clothed in his righteousness. We are made righteous. He declares us as perfect and clothes us in his righteousness. And when he looks at us, he sees perfection. And we need to understand God doesn't see us the way we see ourselves. Too often we see ourselves as losers and wimps and, and failures. And God says, that's not what I see. I see perfection. I see somebody who's loved by me enough to make sure that I'm going to strengthen you. Just lean on me. And that's what this whole first verse is about. The love of God, the care of God. It says, verse 11, Behold, they that were incensed against you shall be ashamed and confounded. They shall be as nothing. They that strive with you shall perish. This is what I say so often. Let God be our defender. This has been how I've tried to live most of my life. Let God defend. So that if somebody comes against me and they're angry and they're bitter, I look around for them later on and I don't find them usually. Number one, if you don't respond, they get tired of trying to fight a, fight a one-sided battle. It is really hard to fight a one-sided battle. Some people are good at it. I mean, I've met people who are really good at fighting a one-sided battle. They're still mad at the person 30 years later and the other person doesn't even know what they're mad about because they weren't fighting the battle. And this person is just railing away at the, you know, a lost cause, but they're not hurting anybody but themselves. And here God says, all those that are angry with you are as nothing. And again, if we're hidden in Christ, the people are really attacking him, not us. And what are they usually upset at us when we're, when we're a Christian living a righteous life? They're usually upset about our righteousness making them look bad. Well, you know, I don't know how you could have treated that police officer who treated you wrong that way. You know, if I would have done, you know, if they had pulled me over, I'd have been in their face. Yeah, you probably would have been in their face and, and pulled off to jail. You know, be my guest. You go ahead and get in their face. You go ahead and, you go ahead and get violent with that person who's being violent at you and, and get shot or get beat up or end up in the hospital. Go ahead. Go, go do that. If that's really what you want to do, go ahead and do it. As for me, I want to follow God. God has not let me down when I've let him be my defender. When I get out and try to defend myself, I always make a mess out of it. I always make, make the situation worse. It always gets worse. And, you know, if we just let God be our defender. Now, is it an easy thing to do? No, it takes a lot of practice to let God be your defender. I still don't do it 100% of the time. I do it more now to, in, in my late 50s than I used to in my 20s and 30s. But every once in a while, I'll try, try to defend myself and make a mess out of things. It's better for me just to stand back and let God be my defender and watch what he does. Sometimes people get saved because of it. Sometimes they get irate. You know, you didn't respond at all. How could you do that? You know, and it, they'll get really upset. And you just let that go against God. Why? Because what are they really mad about? They're, they're mad at God. They're mad at the conviction that God is showing them. I've really learned that the matter somebody gets toward me, the more I need to show them God's love, because usually they're railing against God. I'm the target. I'm the physical target they can see, but what are they upset? God is convicting them. My life is convicting them because of how I'm living godly 
And God is using that and getting them convicted. Usually they're already convicted before, and I just intensify it, and you all will have the same place where somebody's just mad at you because you are stirring the pot on purpose or not on purpose, doesn't matter. You know, just because I didn't get mad at them, I can stir the pot. And they get all upset. How can I fight this one-sided battle, you, you, you? And they try harder to get you mad. God's promise is that the enemy is nothing. And when we're hidden in him, who's taking the beating? He is. And you know what? God is pretty strong. He can take any beating any person wants to give him. He can take any beating the devil wants to give him. It's not going to bother him. He is infinitely powerful. It's like, you know, we see some of these guys that are well-toned and everything, and, and they can take any hit in their gut and not feel it. It doesn't matter who hits them pretty much. They're just, they have developed it. Well, multiply that type of person times, times infinity, and you've got God's strength. God can take anything that anybody wants to throw at him and not even feel it. You know, and that's who we're hidden in if we stay where we're supposed to be. Now, if you want to get out of being hidden with God and take the battle on yourself, you can get beat up and bruised and, and crawl back inside later on and get bandaged up and, and, and doctored up, and God will probably say, well, what'd you go out there for? You know, it would be like going out in the middle of a tornado, you know, right there in your street, <laughs> in your yard. Oh, let me just get out of the tornado shelter and get out in the tornado and see if I can fight the tornado. You'll lose. <laughs> How often do we do that with the people we get out from them inside God and say, I can beat this really strong attack. It's only Satan. I can, I can take him. You know, God didn't, you know, Jesus quoted the Bible and used the Bible to defeat Satan. He didn't even go after him one-on-one, -on -one, and he could have. He was God. But he set an example. Go to God. Go to the Father. Hide in the Father. Hide in the Word so important for us that we don't strive against these individuals. Verse 12 says, you shall seek them and you shall not find them. Even they that contend with you that war against you shall be as nothing and as a thing of naught. It is really wonderful when you hide in God and let God be your defense. You go out sometimes to find the person who's really been attacking and trying to attack you and oftentimes you can't find them. There are times when you literally can't find them. God takes them out. If he can't find another way to do it, he'll take them out. And I've seen this over and over. I've shared with you a man who attacked a pastor for no good reason. The deacon and I went to him and said, you've got to stop this. It's unscriptural. And he wouldn't. He goes, I've got the right to do it. I'm this, that, and the other thing. And we're going, no, you need to repent and get out of that. He, lost, he ended up losing his life. He lost his health. He lost his marriage. He lost his job. He lost two of his kids. You know, and then he died. I truly do believe it's because he did not repent of going after that pastor. And that pastor was very kind, very merciful, hiding in God. And God took his enemy away. And the pastor didn't look at him as an enemy. The pastor goes, well, I feel sorry for him. And I felt sorry oftentimes for people that want to attack me. Because I, number one, know what's going to happen to them. I know that God, if they don't repent, is going to take them out. And I'm afraid of what he's going to do. Not because I'm a special person other than being a child of God. God does not let people go after his children. And even more, 
We're not just his children, we're the bride of Christ. Any man who's worth his salt does not let his bride be assaulted without defending her. You know, not gonna happen. I did that with one of my sons one time. He was thinking he was too big for his britches and insulted my wife and picked him up by his shirt collar and said, you have two choices, apologize to your mom or you're going back, out back and you're gonna be treated like any man who disrespects my wife. Why? Because she needed that defense at that time. He, he decided to apologize. But you know, Jesus is our husband, our husband. How much danger will we be in attacking a fellow Christian out there? We're attacking the bride. Not only that, we're attacking our own body and causing pain in the body. But just on top of that, Jesus isn't going to let it happen. There will be great discipline. And when the world does it, oh, look out. His goal is to get them saved. But he will do what it takes to break, to break what they're doing. And this is what he says. You're not going to find them. They're nothing. This is the great thing. When we rest in the God who loves us and cares for us, he is our defender, he is our protector, and we just get to walk along with him. I think back into the days of the, of the knights in the medieval times and chivalry where, where men actually protected the, to, protected the damsels. Now, I know the women don't usually like to hear that, but you know, they were protected. They were protected. They, nothing was going to happen to you because... I am the one who's going to defend you. Jesus is the ultimate in that with us. He is not going to let anything attack, uh, defeat us. He is the knight in shining armor who's not going to let anything happen as long as we don't get, you know, don't run around him and try to get in the middle of the fight first. We do that, he goes, okay, you want to do, you want to do the fight? Go ahead. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to go grab hold of you and pull you back, but when you, when you get all bloodied and beat up, I'll bring you back and protect you again. He is such a gentleman that if we really want to fight our own battles, he'll let us. But he's there ready to fight our battles for us. You know, I love it. When people say that you're just using God as a crutch, I go, you're right. I have no problem. God is my crutch. I totally stand in him. And then I'll ask him, what is your crutch? Well, I don't have one. Oh, yeah, you have something. All of us have some kind of crutch that we're using. I'm just willing to admit I use God as a crutch. I'm going to let him hold me. I'm going to let him support me. A whole lot better than beer and, and drugs and, and, and lascivious living and workaholism and all the other things I could be using as a crutch instead. God is a much better crutch, much healthier crutch. <laughs> and eternity waits by using him as our crutch. He is going to take us into heaven and give us eternity where we get to reign with him. I'll, I'll take it. I'll take it, God. You, I'll, I'll hide in you. One of the things, and I keep saying this over and over, when people attack us, turn their words against them. When they go, well, you just believe that Bible. It's so full of contradictions. You all know exactly what to say. Show me one contradiction. Let's talk about the contradictions that you're, that you're, that you're, that you're seeing. And inevitably, they're going to say, well, I don't, I don't know. I've just been told it's full of contradictions. No, no. If you're going to tell me it's full of contradictions, what is one contradiction? There aren't any. I've only studied it for 48 years. I know there's no contradictions in it. There's a couple of things that appear to be contradictions until you look at them. 
but there are no contradictions in it. And we need to be very careful that we don't let these people just back us into a corner with their attacks. You know, have them define their attack. Well, you know, you all just believe in this Jesus who supposedly lived. I love that one. Yeah. What do you mean supposedly lived? History proves that Jesus lives. Our calendar is based on the fact that Jesus lived. You know, uh, history is full of the evidence that Jesus lived in this world. Now, you may doubt that he rose again. You may doubt that he's the son of God, but you cannot doubt that he lived. And once you start tearing down that first one, now you can start dealing with, is he who he said he was? And that's another, another, another battle. But we need to be able to be bold with people, not aggressive, not mean, but start turning some of their words on, on their head. People go, well, I hope I'm good enough to go to heaven. No, you're not. I'm not either. What do you mean? That gives us a chance to launch into the gospel for all of sin and come short of the glory of God. You know, the wages of sin is death. We can give the gospel to them. But we just don't let those statements stand out there without challenging them. What do you mean by that? You know, all roads lead to heaven. I love that one. You know, what do you mean all roads lead to heaven? Well, you know, everybody's seeking God. Are you? Well, I, well don't, don't turn my words around on me. I'm going, all roads don't lead to heaven. If you go to the local airport and just randomly pick a plane saying, I'm going to Washington, D.C., you're probably not going to Washington, D.C. if you randomly pick a plane. You know, you may end up in, in uh, Japan instead of Washington, D.C. You know, and people kind of understand that. You know, if I just randomly pick a, pick a transportation vehicle, who knows where I'm going to end up? So, and that's the way it is with God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And we need to accept Jesus for who he says he is. The way, the truth, and the life. Nothing, no other route. And people try it. They try it all the time. We all tried it before we were saved, trying to find, find pleasure and happiness in something other than God. And saying, well, you know, I'm just going to try. I'm going to find it. I'm going to find it eventually. I'm going to find what fills this hole. Yeah, I can tell you exactly what's going to fill that hole. Jesus. Go trust him. Go put your faith in him and let him fill that emptiness. I love talking to people who have found that emptiness filled. When they accept Jesus and they, he fills that hole and all of a sudden, you know, you can see it. You know, I can see when most people are saved. You know, you see the joy, the peace, the lightness. You know, they're not burdened down by sin. They're not burdened down by guilt. And they are joyful. Now, if they've backslidden and they're carrying a load of guilt on them again, they're going to be not as easy to see. But even then, the Spirit will recognize that they are a child of God. There's some people who tell me, well, I'm a, I'm a Christian. And I just kind of look at them and go on, all right, if you say so. And even then, I will go, what does that mean to you to be a Christian? I love some of the answers I get. <laughs> you know, well, I'm a Christian. Well, why? Back in the 60s and 70s, we heard it all. Well, I'm an American. I'm a Christian. We don't hear that as much anymore. You know, nowadays we'll hear, well, mom and dad were Christians. They took me to church every day, every week. Okay, but when did you become a Christian? You know, going to church is not going to make you a Christian, just as going into the garage does not make you a car. 
All right? Going into the hospital does not make you a nurse or a doctor. You know, just because you hang out at the hospital does not mean that you're a nurse or a doctor. You might just be the custodian. <laughs> you might not even belong there at all. You know, so we need to be able to, to push back just a little bit nicely, calmly, but push back. What do you mean when you say that? What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christ follower? I love people who say they're a Christian. They don't believe the Bible. and They don't believe in Jesus. I'm going, well, what are you believing? If you're a Christian and you don't believe in the one you're named after, and you don't believe in his word that tells you how to find him and seek him, what are you believing as a Christian? People get flustered. They want to get us all convinced that we don't know what we're talking about, but all you've got to do is ask a couple of questions, and they're not used to it. They're not used to being asked questions back. We as Christians need to follow what Peter said. Be ready to give an answer for what you believe. Know what you believe and know why. Know what it means to be a Christian. Know why you believe in the word of God. Know why you believe in salvation. Know why you believe in a heaven and hell. Know the reasons for these things. Because then you can turn it around on all these people who are trying to make life difficult for you. Because they don't believe we have answers. And the sad thing is there are a lot of people who say they're Christians that don't have answers. And they just reinforce these people who think that Christians don't have answers. And they get, they get blown away when there's a Christian with answers. A Christian you actually can explain why do you believe what you believe. And I've told everybody in this church, I don't care other than the handful of doctrines that are absolute. You know, Jesus is the Son of God, the, the only way to heaven. He died on the cross for our sins and he rose again from the dead. And the Bible is the absolute word of God and absolutely true. Other than those two doctrines, I don't care whether you agree with me or disagree with me on just about any other point. Just tell me why, be able to explain why you believe what you believe. I can tell you why I believe what I believe. In every one of those, in any point, I can tell you why I believe. And because I'm the pastor here, I hope most of the church will agree with me most of the time. But, you know, I've been in a lot of churches, and I don't think I've ever met a pastor that I agreed with 100% of the time. Because there are some areas that are kind of gray in the scriptures that can, that can have multiple different meanings. Just know why you believe what you believe. Be able to explain it. Know what you believe and why. So that when you have to stand up, you have a reason. And you can explain, this is what's true. This is what's going on. The gospel message is so simple. We're all sinners. We are born sinners. Thank you, Adam and Eve. <laughs> you know, because both of them are responsible. And unfortunately, Eve gets all the blame. But it says that she gave, turned and gave the fruit to Adam who was with her. Adam was right there being a wimp. Men have not changed for all these years. <laughs> We still tend to be wimps when it comes to family life. And Adam started that whole process by being a wimp right in the Garden of Eden, not protecting his wife from the serpent. We're sinners because of their activity. They put sin right into us. We are born sinners. And then we sin because we are a sinner. And then God says, your sin brings death. Jesus came to this world to die so that we could have eternal life. What a wonderful gift. He paid the price we could never pay. Because what's, what's the wages of sin? Death and eternal death, hell. 
the hell temporarily and then the lake of fire for eternity. That is the wages of sin. We earned it. Jesus came and paid that debt because we could not do it. A perfect sacrifice was required to pay the debt. And I love it. Jesus goes up into the courtroom of heaven. Satan comes along to accuse us. Jesus stands beside the Father and says, Satan starts making her accusation. He says, Father, that's paid. Father, that's paid. Father, that one's paid. Can you imagine? Satan never wins. We, we, we think of that, our TV lawyer, Perry Mason, all those years lost only one case and then turned around and made that a win. Jesus hasn't even lost the one case and never will lose a case because his answer is simply, it's already paid for. No, no double jeopardy in God's court. It's already paid for. Already paid for. They, they're wearing the right, my righteousness. It's paid for. What, what a case. Satan comes in. He's got all of his facts. You know, and we know that Satan has lots of facts. He, go, he knows everything that we've done. He knows everything that we have, have tried to do or not done. And he stands before God to accuse us. And Jesus just says, it's paid for. And they're clothed in my righteousness. How frustrating that has to be to Satan. To lose every time that he goes before him. And even if he doesn't, he goes into courts like in Job's case and says, well, God, if you didn't protect them, they wouldn't follow you. And God says, all right, you've got permission to go after them. We need to remember God is with us. He is always there with us. Nothing comes our way without his permission. Now, he may step away while we're being, step, step back while we're being tested, but he's still right there. He's still right there watching. And he's still, Satan to this day, has to ask permission to touch people. And I believe he has to ask permission to even touch the lost people because otherwise he'd kill them all because he wants them to go straight to hell without a chance to get to know God. So he even has to ask for permission to do that. Now, God will probably be more generous to him to go after the lost because they're not his children. All right, go ahead. But he's, not, he's still going to put a restriction. Satan, you can't take their life. It's not time yet. It's not time to take their life. What a wonderful God we serve. What a wonderful God we, we have paying attention to us. Verse 13. For I, the Lord your God, will hold your right hand, saying unto you, them, Fear not, I will help you. Again, he's saying, I'm holding on to you. I'm holding on to you. Do we remember maybe back when we were a little kid holding mom or dad's hand and the security we felt because mom or dad's there? You know, we're going to walk to school. The bullies have been picking on me, but they're not going to pick on me today. Dad is with me. <laughs> They're not going to come out of the woodwork to, to attack now. And even if they do, Dad can take care of them. We have Dad holding our hand. We have a Dad that can't be beat. We have a Dad that Satan is afraid of. Literally afraid of. Because he knows what's in store for him. He knows his future. Why he fights so hard against God, I don't know. He knows the future. He knows he's going to be defeated. The only thing I can think of is he's trying to hurt God as much as possible by taking as many people to he into hell with him. 
that way God, he hurts God. See God, I got, I got another one of your people. I got another one of your people. If you remember the movie Encounter where, where they meet Jesus and Satan comes in and he gets one soul out of the five and he goes, I got one and Jesus goes, four saved. Four saved. He, wants, he wanted the other one. And you even remember him saying, you know, the hard part about being God is knowing that for everything you try, you know what they're going to decide. But when they end up standing before him, God will say, you're without excuse. When people stand at the white throne judgment, and when they stand at the white throne judgment, they're guilty. Jesus is going to point out every time they had to accept him. Every time. Every time they were watching a Christian do the right thing and got a little bit of conviction and said, right there, that was one of them. This person actually witnessed to you. That's another one. That person gave you a track. That person, a little more cowardly, but they left the track out on the counter and you picked that track up and glanced at it. You know, this person, this, this message you heard on the radio or the TV, this time that you graced the church's doors, not knowing what you were doing, you know, and he will show them every single time and they will go into hell knowing that they deserve what they got. That will be the ultimate. Even, even if you took away the burning and the suffering and the pain and everything else, to know for eternity you're where you are because you chose it. No love, no goodness, no kindness, no mercy, no grace for all of eternity. In and of itself, those would be bad enough. And then Jesus says, your conscience is going to burn you for eternity. There will be a lake of fire and you will not be consumed as you are burnt for eternity. You know, in agony, in pain for eternity, plus a conscience that you can't get rid of. We all know what it's like to suffer a guilty conscience. You know, when we do something wrong and we don't instantly repent and God's putting that knife into our conscience and twisting it and poking at it. And finally, if we have any desire at all to get right with God, we finally say, God, I am so tired of this. Take it away. I repent. Hopefully we do it quickly. You know, God just has to touch our conscience. And we're soft and pliable and we turn around, oh God, I am so sorry I messed up. It's only been three seconds since I did it, but I am sorry. God, it's been three days. I, I'm finally sorry. God, it's been three years. I'm finally sorry. God, it's been three decades. I'm finally sorry. God doesn't really care when we say we're sorry, but he's going to keep the pressure on us. The longer we wait, the more he's going to pressure us. And there will come a point where he says, okay, you're my child. I'm going to lay, lay your sin out before everybody else to try to get you to repent. And he holds us. He loves us. He cares for us. And he says, fear not. I'm going to help you. We just need to be able to trust him. Trust that he's there to help us. Verse 14 is kind of interesting. Fear not, you worm, Jacob. You men of Israel, I will help you, says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Why is he using that term? I really believe he's using it because he says, you may think you're worthless, but I am still here to help you. You may think that you're a worm, and by the way, if I looked at your sin, you are a worm. <laughs> but I am still here to love you and lift you up. And this is how Satan gets to us. He comes with facts. How many times has Satan come and said, you know, if everybody really knew who you were, I mean, you did this, you did that, you did this, you did this, if people really knew who you were, 
They wouldn't like you. And by the way, God doesn't like you either because he knows all this stuff. And how often do we buy into it? This is why we must live by faith. God says we're forgiven. He says we're sanctified. He says he sees us as perfect. He says we are righteous in Christ. The more we learn to walk by faith, the more those facts don't mean anything to us. Because we start living a new way and we get a whole new set of facts to live on. Because Satan comes at us with facts and we just go, nope, I'm living by faith. I know who God says I am. I know who God says I am. And that's why I like to sing so many of our songs that talk about who are we in Christ. You know, God, when I don't feel like I'm loved, you're there loving me. When I think I'm fallen, you're there to catch me. When I think I'm weak, you're my strength. You know, remind me who I am. You know, when, I, when I can't even remember who I am, remind me. Remind me when I can't receive your grace that, that you got grace for me. I love God's grace. I like giving people grace as much as possible because people need grace. I need grace. We all need grace. Without God's grace, we're in trouble. You know, amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. You know, I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. His grace grabs hold of us, wraps us up. Now, his grace cost a fortune. Cost a huge fortune. It cost Jesus his life. It cost him his blood for him to take to the mercy seat in heaven and place before the Father on the mercy seat of heaven to cover our sin, which the law reveals. And remember, what's inside the Ark of the Covenant, which is covered by the mercy seat? The Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments reveal our sin. And what is over that? The blood of Christ. The blood of Christ covers the sin. It covers the law, covers our unrighteousness. And God says, what do I see? I see my blood. My blood that hides your sin as far as the east is from the west. In the deepest sea. And as Corey Ten Boom says, then he hangs a no fishing sign on it. <laughs> you know, we have a God who knows all things. And yet by divine fiat, which is a command, he has placed our sin in a place, he says, this is the place I put things I want to forget. He places our sins in a place to forget them and covers them with the blood of Christ and says, I'm not going beneath the blood of Christ to look at these sins. They're paid for. What do people stand before him in? The righteousness of Jesus Christ or their own righteousness? And at the white throne judgment, people are going to stand before God in their own righteousness and saying, God, look at me. Look how good I am. And then they're going to get a good look at their clothing, especially when they look at their neighbor and think, you know, well, you got some really ugly clothes on. And they look at him and go, so do you. And they look down and go, oh, I do. This is how I want to present myself to the God of heaven. These ugly, filthy, disgusting rags to stand before the the throne room of heaven to plead my case that I belong in heaven? You know, if you go to court, you dress up as best that you can. You may not have a lot, but you're going to dress up in the best clothes that you have, freshly laundered, perfectly clean, to make your case that you deserve mercy. At the white throne judgment, they're going to have on the best that they have. 
which is filthy rags. And God's going to look down and say, you're guilty. Your, your righteousness proves that you're guilty, and now let me show you that you rejected all those times and you could have had the perfect righteousness. We think about this. People are not going to hell for their sins. They're going to hell for their lack of perfect, perfect life. All the good things that they do are what they're going to go to hell for. Because all those good things are tainted. Tainted with self-will. Tainted with pride. Tainted with imperfection. And God's going to say, depart. We had the parable of the marriage supper where God said, with all the invited guests say, no, I'm not going to come. And the father says, all right, go out to the byways and highways and bring them in. And you give them the garments and you bring them in. And remember, there was the one man that didn't put on the wedding garment. And he was cast out into utter, utter darkness. I can't tell you how many times I've heard pastors teach messages that have no clue what that story is about. That man was clothed in his own righteousness and was rejected and said, no, this is not the place for you. That is what happens at the white throne judgment. People will stand in their own righteousness, their own garment, saying, God, I belong in heaven. I belong there. I have been a really good person. Others are going to go there and say, well, I, you know, I don't deserve heaven at all. I know I don't, but it's too late. Once you die, everybody wants to go to heaven. Because then they're going to see God. They're going to see their right, uh, right, uh, unrighteous rags that they're wearing. They're going to know that God sits on a throne. They're going to know that the blood of Christ covers that throne and that covers the sin. And it is too late. And that is what's going on in here. He says, I, in verse 15, Behold, I will make you a new sharp threshing instrument having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and beat them small and shall make the hills as chaff. You shall fan them and the wind shall carry them away. A whirlwind shall scatter them. And you shall rejoice in the Lord and shall glory in the Holy One of Israel. God makes us brand new. I love this number one. Everyone that is in Christ is a new creation. Here he uses another word, another idea for new. He says, I have made you a new sharp threshing instrument. And this talks about those threshing knives that gather in the harvest. Now these knives are so sharp that he says they're going to tear apart the mountains and the hills. Number one, that's a very big threshing instrument. Number two, that is a sharp threshing instrument. What does this mean? How many times do we get stopped by mountains or things that we think are mountains? You know, we get stopped by giants in our life that we don't trust God to take care of. Huge mountains. You know, God, this problem is really too big. I can't overcome it. And that's what God wants to hear. But he wants us to say, God, I trust you to get over it. Because a mountain to God is nothing. He can flatten the mountain. He can, he can carry us over the mountain. He can lead us over that mountain however he pleases. And we will probably find out when we're on the other side that the mountain really wasn't that big. How many times have you got to the, back, the other side of a problem and looked back on it and go, That's what I, that was what bothered me so much? That, that little problem that is now just a little tiny molehill or an anthill or a pebble? <laughs> you know, I look back on it and go, That's what bothered me? Yeah, I think about this because I've had this kind of experience when I was young. I can remember, I think I've shared it with you. I remember a playground slide that I, I remember it as like 50 feet tall. Now, that was when I was about three feet tall. 
I'm sure when I go, if I was ever to go back and see that slide again, if it, even if it exists anymore, I'd probably go, this was, my, this was my 30, 50 foot slide. But you know, we do that with God. When we grow with him, we get past a problem, we look back on it and we've grown a little bit. And we go, that was what I was afraid of? The scriptures tell us that when we stand in heaven and Satan is brought before the throne of heaven to be judged, the people will say, that's what made the, the worlds tremble? That's what made us so afraid? That? Which means we've, we're looking at when, when we see Satan for who he really is, it has to be some kind of wimpy, emaciated shell of a being. When we will look at him and say, that's what made everybody tremble? That? <laughs> that little thing? <laughs> you know, and I don't believe it's just Christians that are going to look at him that way. And I've said this before, and we really want to emphasize this. Satan is not the ruler of hell. He is a prisoner of hell. He has taken all the people with him to hell that he can for only one reason, not to make a kingdom, but to hurt God. Because every soul he takes away from God is a pain in God's, in God's heart. This was my creation. Why did they turn away from me? Why did they not accept me? Any parent that's had a child turn away from them knows the feeling. Multiply that by God's standards so many more times because he's the perfect parent. He didn't do anything wrong for them to reject him other than be God. And they reject him. And millions and millions are going to reject him. Jesus said that the way to heaven is narrow and many there be that won't find it. He said the road to hell and destruction is wide and many will go that way. Many in that day will say, Lord, Lord, didn't I, thinking I was good. There are people sitting in churches that are going to go before Jesus and say, God, you know, I went to church every Sunday, Wednesday, you know, all the Bible studies, I went to the revivals, I even handed out a few tracts, I went to the, I went to the, the hospital and visited people, I, I went to the prison a couple of times, I went to the poor houses, I gave my money. And he's going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. He's going to say, all those good works aren't what I wanted. I wanted you to know me. Now, when we know him, we will naturally go out and do other things. Because his, him living in us will change us. But just doing those does not make God happy with us. You know, and this is the thing. I look at that list of things, and those are things that if you saw somebody like that, you're going, wow, this person really must be a Christian. But if you got to talk to them, you'd find out that they're not doing it for the right reasons. You know, well, I'm hoping I'm doing a lot of good stuff. I'm hoping that I'm going to be good. You know, and I have met so many people that have gotten saved 60, 70 years old, that have been in church all their life, and all of a sudden it dawns on them, I never knew God. I can tell you all the stories. I can tell you all the doctrines. I can tell you the biographies of all the great Christians. I can tell you great testimonies that I've heard. But I never knew him. Thank God they get saved at a, at a later years. And the saddest thing is, many people who grow up in church are that way. They've heard the message so many times, so often, and don't make a personal decision for it. And this is my worry sometimes. When kids get saved at four, five, six years old, did they know what they did? Did they really understand what they had done? 
you can see, over time you can see, and then you go, okay. But there has to be a time in every person's life, when they, especially when they grow up in a church, that they make the transition from this is mom and dad's faith to this is my faith. I believe that Jesus died for my sins and that I need him to go to heaven. And that has to be a point in time when we make that decision and say, it's mine. It's not my parents. It's not my grandparents. It's my decision that I am going to follow God. And this is so important. He says, I'm going to make you, I'm going to destroy all the mountains. I'm going to destroy the hills. And matter of fact, you're going to be the one at the instrument. You're going to be the one using the instrument to do that. It's faith. Faith that moves mountains. Faith that destroys our obstacles because we're hidden in him and God says it'll become as the shave and a whirlwind will blow it away not just a wind the wind was good enough right I'm threshing my weed and getting all the the weeds and the stuff off of it and the wind blows it away if it's a decent enough wind and it just keeps taking it and he goes not only am I going to give you a wind I'm going to give you a whirlwind we're really going to remove this stuff how many times have we walked into a situation that felt like God was putting a whirlwind in our life? Uh, all right, God, enough of this. I'm, I'm inside you. What, what's all this wind and storm all about? He goes, we're, we're testing you. Are you going to stay strong? Are we going to trust his word? Ultimately, we're told to trust Jesus. Trust is that point when we see no other way out except to put full trust in him. No plan A, no plan B, uh, no plan B, no plan C. My plan is Jesus. If Jesus isn't who he says he is, I'm without hope. We are betting our eternity that Jesus is who he says he is. When I die, all of my marbles are on the table that I'm going to go to heaven with Jesus. And I've had people that were aware that's not true. Well, you know, if it's not true, then you can ask your God what was true. But you know what? All the blessings he's given me, all the care that he's given me, all the protection he's given me in this life, which is what he said he was going to do, tells me that eternity is secure. He's proving my, my, my trust in him for eternity today with all that he does. I am shocked when I look at Christians who won't trust him in this life saying they're going to trust him for eternity. I don't understand that mentality. I really don't. If I can't trust him today in this life, how can I even begin to think that I can trust him for eternity? If he's not strong enough to take care of me now, I better go find something that's strong enough to take care of me now so that they can take care of me in eternity. But his absolute presence and protection has been so wonderful that I know, that I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is, true, is viable for eternity because of how much he's blessed this life. And you know what? Even if there wasn't an eternity, if, even if there is no eternity like the world wants to say, I have lived such a blessed, wonderful, peaceful life that I wouldn't be losing out on anything. But that very life tells me that God is true for the eternity. You know, but I will tell people, I go, well, if there is no eternity, I haven't missed a thing. God has given me such a wonderful life that if for somehow he lied to me about eternity and there is no eternity, I'm still so blessed. But because he is truthful here, 
I know there's an eternity that he said there is. And I know he's going to give me everything he said he's going to give me in eternity. That gives us so much confidence. You know, so much confidence because we know. You know, and I love talking, well, you just believe that fairy tale God. No, I know that I know God. Well, you can't know that. Well, I know. I know that I know God as much as I know that I know you, and I'm talking to you because he answers, he, he is protected, he is provided. I know that he exists. Can I empirically prove it? Not without my testimony. But you know what? It's my testimony. Nobody can argue with you about your testimony. They may be able to argue scientific facts with you. They may be able to understand, you know, argue you know, facts with you. But you know what God has done for you. You know when God has changed your life and taken away your cravings for the sins that used to hold you bondage. You know when he's given you victory over those sins and you, that you have fought for for decades sometimes. And all of a sudden he says, here's your victory. And you go, that's God. I don't care what you say. I don't care if you believe me or not, but God delivered me. Those things touch people more than they want to admit. When we give our testimony, it touches them more than they want to admit. They may argue. They may not believe it. But at the dark of the night, when it's just them and the Holy Spirit, and Holy Spirit whispering in their ear, what if that crazy person was right? You know, what, if that, what if that verse is right? I know you think it's crazy, but you know, that insane person you met out there that's talking about, about Jesus, what if they're right? You know, watch the movie, Do You Believe? You know, and the, the pastor on his message said, you know, I met this crazy guy with a cross who asked me, do I believe? And he says, that haunted me. How many times have we been haunted by something that was planted in our, in our heart? Even as a Christian sometimes. <laughs> haunted by what was put in our heart because the spirit goes in. What if it's true? Do you really believe? Do you really believe God's word? This is why we're put into the trials that we're put in all the time. God's saying, do you really believe? You say you believe it. Do you really believe my word? Do you really believe I'm your provider when times get hard? Do you really believe I'm your defense when this person is being insane and attacking you with everything they have and, and making life miserable for you? Do you really believe I'm your defender? Or are you going to try to deal with it yourself? Do you really believe that you're a new creation in Christ? Do you really believe that you are a child of God who's a blood-bought believer clothed in the righteousness of Christ when Satan attacks us with all the bad that we've ever done in our life? Do I really believe? All of our trials and temptations are designed to say, do I really believe? And too often we fail, myself included. <laughs> too often we fail, and we have to go to God and go, God, I am really sorry. I messed up that, I messed up that test. And then he gives us a little bit of respite and then gives us the, the test again. Not the same exact test, but the same type of test. Okay, I wanted you to love that person. Let me put a new person in here for you to love and see if you can pass this one. Now, you failed that one. I'm going to bring another person into your, into your life. See if, you, see if you can pass that one. And then eventually we go, God, okay, you love me. I'm supposed to love them. Okay, I got it. <laughs> and we pass the test. Then he brings somebody harder to love. <laughs> he said, do, do you really believe like I do? 
Everything, though, is going to be just that. God, I read your word. I believe your word. And God says, okay, do you really believe it? Do you really believe? And too often we're living in the old man. We go back, dig him up out of the grave, put him on with all that stinky, smelly, rotted, decaying flesh because he's dead, and we put him on instead of wanting to dwell in the righteousness of Christ. Now, we haven't actually put off the righteousness of Christ. We have just put something over it because once we're saved, we are going to be saved. No matter what I do, if I am truly his child and I have eternal life, I have eternal life. I can't get rid of eternal life because if I could, it wouldn't be eternal. And this is why it is so important to understand that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth on him should have eternal life by believing in him. Now, does that mean that everybody who says they've trusted in him is, is got eternal life? Nope. Many in that day will say, Lord, Lord, didn't I do all these things? I went to church. I did all these things. And he's going to say, I don't know who you are. You may claim my name, but you never trusted in me. Once we've trusted in him, and I've said this over and over, if you trust in God, you cannot sin without being convicted. You may keep sinning and make that conviction get duller and duller and duller, but you cannot sin if you're his child without conviction. If you're a lost person, you can sin without conviction. It doesn't matter to me at all. You know, yeah, I go to church, so that's just, that's just church. Yeah, I read the Bible, but that's just the Bible. It doesn't really hold sway over me. Man, I read the Bible, and it's like, oh, ouch! That's a sin, God? You want me to do what? You want me to change what? You know, even after 48 years of study, and it's like, no, God, that, that wasn't there last time I read it. I know I've never seen that verse in, that, in the book, even though it's been there for every other time that I've read the book and not seen it. You know, I like to tease God about that when he shows me something brand new. My right, God, when did you put it in here? I, I've read this dozens, hundreds, you know, you know, many, many times, and that wasn't there before. I know it wasn't there before. I know that it was there, and I know that God knows that I know that it was there. But I'm just going, okay, God, yes, I understand. You put that verse in there just for me, just now, and, and live it. But, you know, all of this is going to come down to, do I trust God? Do I trust his word? And it's a battle in our soul because we have the flesh that wants to keep railing up its head, digging itself out of the ground. The flesh is a zombie. <laughs> it keeps digging itself up out of the ground and we let it. We may even help it get out of the ground. And God says, I crucified that thing. Put that back in the ground. And we keep letting it come up to ruin and, and destroy our life for a period of time. You know, just imagine, one of the punishments in ancient Rome was to, sometimes they tied a dead body to you and made you carry that dead body around as it decayed and got disease-filled and then made you get disease-filled and you died. It was a horrible, awful death. Besides which, it stank. We do that as Christians so often. We get the old man out of the grave, we strap him onto our back and we carry him around saying, okay, I got this thing. You know, I deserve this. It's me. And we walk around with it, getting stinkier and sicker spiritually with each passing day that we keep it on there. And the Father's standing there, would you just let me cut that thing off of you and put it back in the grave where it belongs? 
No, no, God, you know, I, I got I to pay, pay for my sins. Your, your sacrifice wasn't enough. I've got to go do something to make up for it. And besides, I kind of like it. I kind of like being able to sin once in a while and blame him. <laughs> you know, we need to be so careful about that. In his word, leaving the sin, leaving the old man buried, living in the newness of Christ, and the new, his mercies are new every morning, the psalm says. Every day, new mercies. Every day, new manna. And remember when the children of Israel wandered in the wilderness, every day they had to go get manna because the old couldn't be carried over for two days. It got worms and stank. It was unhealthy on the second day, unless it was Sabbath. But God says, I've got new mercies for you every day. I've got new food for you every day. Don't try to stockpile up my truth. You know, don't try to live on your truth. And I have met people, they're remembering a sermon for 50, from 40 years ago and living on that sermon. It's like, uh, do you realize that God has new food for you? New messages in the God's word? Why would you want to use that moldy old, every amen of great sermon, wonderful sermon. But God's got new food for us, new truth for us. Not brand new truth, but new, fresh truth to, gain, to give us strength. That would be like trying to say, okay, I made this meal seven years ago and I'm still eating this meal. You know, this loaf of bread, still eating from this loaf of bread 20 years from now. You know, it's full of mold and, and fungus and it's got good penicillin in it. <laughs> you know, uh, you know it's, it's just a loaf, of, a, a loaf of mold now, but you know, I made it and that's what I got to live off of. That's not what we would do in physical life. It's not what we're supposed to do spiritually. All right, I went way over. Let's close in prayer. <laughs> Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you that you do care for us, Lord. We thank you that you are our strength. You uphold us. You're holding our hand. You're feeding us. You're supporting us. Lord, help us to always remember who you are, who we are in you, and learn to trust you with all of our heart. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.